Good morning, Northwest. Go ahead and have a seat. Uh, my name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. If this is your first time here, I want to especially welcome you, whether you have a church background at all or whether this is your first time uh, ever even stepping into a group of people that are talking about things that have to do with, with faith. We hope that uh, regardless of your spiritual background, we hope that you'll find this to be a safe place to grow, a safe place to learn, a safe place to ask questions, and ultimately a safe place to join us in following Jesus together. Um, so we've been, for the past few weeks, we've been going through this series in Genesis 1 through 11 that we're calling Snake Crusher Wanted. And um, I want to start off today by talking about something I experienced this past week. Um, so as a parent of young kids, Lindsay and I have three daughters, eight, five, and three, and as a parent of young kids, and those of you that have had young kids or currently have young kids, you might have experienced this too, as a parent of young kids, one of the most stress-inducing experiences that I have is walking across a crowded parking lot. Can anybody else relate to that? So as soon as we get, uh, we get out of the car, we're at Target or we're, you know, we're at the grocery store or something like that, we get out, we get out of the car, and you know, my eight-year-old Valerie, she's, she's a little bit better, she can kind of navigate herself, but my younger two, Ruby and Rose, the five and the three-year-old, I mean, they just want to, it's just you know, running, and, and they just want to like, show off their latest princess dance, and you know, they see the cart over there that has the thing that's the place for them to sit, and they want to run over there and make sure they have dibs on that cart, and so they're going all over the place, they see a flower, they see a bug, they see a squirrel, and so everybody just wants to run every single direction uh, that they can think of, and I'm anxious because I know that there's cars that are coming through here that might pull out suddenly that could kind of turn them into a skid mark on the, on, on the ground, <laughs> right? <laughs> so, sorry, that was a little bit too dark, but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> that's what goes through my mind, though, when I, that's, the, the, that's why I get so stressed is because that's what goes through my mind. So anyway, so we're going, we're going through the, uh, the parking lot, and, and so what do I do? How do we navigate that? Well, one way that we could do that, I could try to explain to them, I could explain to them, okay, here's 20 rules about how to get through the parking lot. This is what you have to look out for. You need to, you know, you, you need to walk, but don't run. You need to stay on this side of the road. You need to not go towards this, yada, yada, yada. That's one thing I could do. I don't think that would work very well. So what do I do? What I tell them is, I, I tell them, hey, hold daddy's hand and walk with daddy. Hold my hand and walk together with me, and I'll make sure that we get to the other side safely. And th the reason that I bring this up today is because we've been talking about the story of Noah. We're talking about the story of Noah, and last week we talked about God's judgment. And this week we're talking about God's salvation in the story of Noah and the flood. And um, we live in a world, if you're a disciple of Jesus, or regardless of whether or not you're a disciple of Jesus here this morning, you live in a world, and I live in a world, we live in a world that is beautiful, that's wonderful because God made it, but also because of sin, it's also full of danger, it's full of evil, 
And so for us, thinking today is full of temptation. For us today, the question is, how are we going to make it through this life, this kind of busy parking lot of a life? How are we going to make it through this life and safely enter in, into God's kingdom? So like I said, today we're talking about the story of Noah. Last week we hit on judgment, and this week we're talking about, about God's salvation. So turn with me to Genesis chapter 6. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 6 through 9 today. We'll be jumping around a little bit. But um, so yeah, that's the question I want you to ask. What does it look like for us to safely make it through this life and enter into God's kingdom? It's what we're going to see in Genesis uh, 6 through 9, the story of Noah, we're basically going to see two things. We're going to see how God saves. In this story about how God's saving Noah, we're going to see how God saves. And then secondly, we're going to see who God saves. And if you're listening to this and you're not a, a disciple of Jesus, maybe you've heard Christians use this term about being saved. You just heard uh, you just heard Matt talking about it, this idea of, of crying out to, to be saved. And maybe to you, that sounds like just a really weird, kind of old-fashioned, churchy word. What does that mean, to, to get saved or, or something like that? Well, this is a chance for you to get to hear and to get to learn what it means to be saved and why Christians make such a, a big deal of, about that. So we're going to look at who God saves, and then we're going to look at how God saves. Sound good? Okay, so first of all, let's look at how God saves. And we're going to see that in the, in the New Testament, as the New Testament writers are reflecting back on the story of God saving Noah from the flood, they say that this is a good picture of what salvation looks like, not just for Noah, but for us today as people who are disciples of Jesus living in this world as, as well. So we're going to see how God saved Noah, and that's going to tell us a lot about how God saves us as well. So we're going to see that back then in the flood, just like today, that God saves Noah, and he saves us, you could say, in three, you could call them phases. God saves Noah in three phases, or there's three phases that God saves Noah through. Okay, the first one is that God saves Noah from the penalty of the flood. God saves Noah from the penalty of the flood. Look with me at, uh, at, at chapter 6, 17 through 19. So remember, God has told uh, Noah uh, to build an ark, and here he's telling him why. He says, for behold, uh, so 6, 17 through 19. Uh, chapter 6, 17 through 19. So he says, Behold, this is God talking to Noah, Behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. And remember what we saw last week is that God looked down at this creation that he had made that had tried to define good and evil on their own terms instead of God ter God's terms, and the result was that the world was full of evil and, and violence. So he decides he has to, to wipe out all of the evil and wipe out all of the evildoers as well. So then he says, everything that is on the earth shall die. He's going to wipe everything out. But, he says, I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And every living thing of all flesh you shall bring two of every sort 
into the ark to keep them alive with you. Okay, so the first thing we see is that God saves Noah from the penalty of the flood. So the question you have to ask is, is Noah, does Noah deserve salvation? Or is Noah a sinner just like the rest of the people in that time are? And it, it, it's true that the Bible does say that Noah is righteous. I think it's fair to say when God says that Noah is righteous in that generation, he's grading on a pretty heavy curve, okay? Um, and the reason we know that is because you look at right after the story in Genesis chapter 9, after the flood, the first thing that Noah does, he gets like wasted, blackout drunk, and then has this weird kind of indecent exposure slash maybe even like incestuous sexual thing happen between him and one of his sons, which is crazy. It's one of those things you think, that's really in the Bible? Yeah, that's really in the Bible. Why is that in the Bible? To show us Noah's not the snake crusher. Okay, Noah is a sinner just like all of us. But God invites Noah to be saved from the penalty of the flood. So you could say, does Noah deserve, technically speaking, to be wiped out as well? Well, yes, he does. But God is rescuing him through the ark by providing this boat that he tells Noah to make, and he allows Noah to go into the ark. And then in chapter 7, in verse 1, we, say, we see where the Lord says to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you were righteous before me in this generation. So instead of wiping Noah out along with the rest of the world with the flood, he allows Noah and his family and two of every kind of animal in the world to be saved from the penalty of the flood by going into the ark. Now, what does this have to say to us? Well, just like God saved Noah from the penalty of the flood, he saved him through a wooden boat, right? Today, and 1,500 years after Moses was writing these words, in about, uh, in about 33 AD, Jesus also, not by making a wooden boat, but by carrying a wooden cross, he saves us from the penalty, not of a flood, but from the penalty of our sin. And that's what we see happening when Jesus dies for us, is that Jesus is basically saying, hey, everybody deserves to be wiped off the face of the earth, right? But Jesus is wiped off the face of the earth for us so that we can live forever, so that we, just like Noah, can be rescued from the penalty of sin, that we don't have to fear God's punishment because Jesus has already taken it on for us. And just like the only safe place in the world at that time to be, to be saved from the penalty of the flood wiping out and judging all of creation was to be in the ark in the same way today, what's the only safe place in the world for you? It's in Christ, right? So first of all, we see that God saved Noah from the penalty of the flood. Second of all, we see that God saved Noah from the power of the flood. He saved him from the penalty, and second of all, he saved him from the power of the flood, uh, look with me at verse at chapter 7. I'm going to read 17 through 24. Chapter 7, 17 through 24. So uh, Noah has built the ark like God commanded. He's gone into the ark with his family, and God has, has sent the rains uh, down on the earth. 
And it's, it's interesting the way God describes it. He says that waters burst forth from the earth. It's like there were these underground streams and oceans that just, just are, are spraying water out everywhere. And there's also water coming down um, from, from the sky uh, via, via rain. And look at how it describes the power of the flood in uh, verses 17 through 24. It says, And the flood continued for 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. So remember we said last week, when we think flood, we think of like three inches of water in your basement. And again, when you think flood, don't think that. Think about like a a hundred-foot tsunami tidal wave that just obliterates everything in its path. That, That gives you a better idea of the type of flood that we're talking about here. And in verse 19, it says, And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. And the waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits. That's about 22 feet deep. So the waters, the waters are so powerful, the flood is so intense, that even the highest mountains are covered by over 20 feet of water. And look at verse 21. What happened to the, the people who were on the earth as a result of the flood? And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, and all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all of mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils were, was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground Man and animal, creeping thing, and the birds of the heavens, they were blotted out from the face of the earth. Only Noah was left. Only Noah was left. And those who were with him in the ark, and the waters prevailed on the earth for 150 days. So think about what's happening here. Remember when God created the world. What's the, what's the thing that God did on day two? Does anybody remember? The fr- day one, let there be light. Day two, what does he do? He separates the waters. Which waters does he separate? He separates the waters above from the waters that were below, right? To create this space that he called the sky, okay? And that was part of God's process of creation, what was, the, what, was, what was the blank canvas that God was painting creation on? It says it was this, it was formless and void, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the what? The waters. So before God started his work of creation, what, what there was, God's blank canvas, was this just massive, chaotic, watery wasteland. And then God, he separates the waters above from the waters below, and he starts to create land, he starts to create vegetation so it can support life. Well, what's happening here? Remember, God separates the waters above from the waters below. Well, what's happening now? Well, the waters below are, and the waters above are, 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 are pouring down. So this is, this is a reversal of creation. This is a decreation so to speak. This is God saying, I gave you the gift of a beautiful created order, 
And because you're rebelling against me and throwing the world back into chaos, I'm going to decreate what I have created and start over. Okay, but what's happening to Noah and the people with him on the ark at this point? Okay, so all of everything's getting obliterated. Everything's reverting back to that watery chaos that can't support any life. What's happening to Noah? Noah's in this big boat, and who's with him? Well, his, his family's with him, and then two of every kind of animal are with him. And it says, we didn't read this, but it said before that God also provided abundant food for them to be on the ark. What does this remind you of? You have the man and the woman living in harmony together with abundant food with the animals. This ringing any bells? The, the, the ark is like this in the midst of God resetting creation to its factory settings. Okay, the ark is like a floating garden of Eden. And so in the midst of this powerful flood that's wiping out everything in its path, Noah is experiencing the blessing that God gave to his people in the garden of Eden. Noah is is safe and he's being provided for. In the same way, just like God delivered and saved Noah from the power of the flood, Jesus, through his resurrection, he saves us from the power of our sin. So Jesus dies on the cross for our sins, taking on the penalty so we can be saved from the penalty of sin. But he didn't stay dead. On the third day, he came back to life, and he returned to the Father so that what? So that he could give us eternal life, so that he could give us new life. And so that he could literally take his spirit, he could literally take his spirit and put it inside of each and every single one of you that has a relationship with him that's trusting in, in Jesus. What does God put his spirit inside of us for? The reason God puts his spirit in us is so that he can start to gradually save us and rescue us from the power of sin in our lives. Because the Bible is very clear that we, apart from Christ, we're, we're enslaved to sin. We have no choice but, but to sin. And even as Christians, even as disciples of Jesus, we find ourselves often sinning, often doing things that we know that we shouldn't. But God putting his Holy Spirit in us, he's giving us the power to gradually, little by little, as we learn to rely less on myself and more on the power of the Holy Spirit that's within me, he's gradually making me more and more and more like Jesus, making me, giving me more and more power to say no to sin and to say yes to God, to say no to defining good and evil the way I think they should be defined, and yes to defining good and evil the way God defines good and evil. And so here's the thing, if, if you're here and you're not a disciple of Jesus, here's the thing that you need to understand about what it means to follow, to follow the teachings of Jesus, is that Christianity or following Jesus is completely different from any other philosophy or religion in, in the world. Well, why is that? Because every other religion in the world basically says, you clean yourself up, 
and become a good person and get your act together, and then you can come to God and he'll love you and accept you and forgive you. Okay, you, you clean yourself up, you be a good person, and then you come to God, and maybe if you're good enough, he'll accept you and love you and forgive you. But Jesus says the opposite. Jesus doesn't say, hey, you fix yourself, then come to me and we'll be okay. Jesus says, I am giving you love and forgiveness right now as a gift. All you have to do is receive it. But And after you receive my love and my forgiveness after you enter into relationship with me, not because of what you have done, but because of what Jesus has done for you, then, God says, I'll put my spirit inside you and start changing you and making you into a better human being. So we don't become really, really loving and really, really generous and really, really pure and really, really honest, and then Jesus saves us. Is Jesus saves us, Jesus loves us and forgives us and rescues us, and as a result of that, he continues his work in us to make us more honest, to make us more generous, to make us more holy, to make us more loving, to make us more forgiving, to do all those things that we know that we should do and that sometimes we feel guilty about not doing. That comes as God is rescuing us through Jesus from the power of sin in our lives. Well, the third thing that we see, we see that God rescues Noah from the penalty of the flood, God rescues Noah from the power of the flood, and thirdly, we see that God rescues Noah from the presence of the flood. He rescues Noah from the presence of the flood. So you see, Noah is, right now, he's safe on the ark. You know, the, the chaotic waters are raging around him. Everything's getting wiped out, and he's okay. He's safe and provided for in the ark. But that can only last for so long, right? Um, and what we see in the next phase is that God takes away the flood and allows Noah to once again live and experience God's blessing in a new purified world. Look with me at chapter 8, verse 1. Genesis 8, uh, I'll start and read in verse 1, I'll read through verse 5. It says, but God, let me read this again. This is the, this is the but God moment of the Noah story. Okay, this is the whole turning point. But God, what did he do? He remembered Noah. God remembered Noah as all of the chaotic waters were raging. God remembered Noah and all of the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. Remember we said when God created the world, it's a watery, chaotic wasteland. Where is God? It says the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters. And some of you know that the word, in, in the original Hebrew, the language that this was written in, the word spirit, as in the Spirit of God, is the exact same word as the word for wind. Okay, so Genesis chapter 1, chaotic waters and the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters, getting ready to bring order out of chaos. And here, in Genesis chapter 8, you have the chaotic floodwaters and the wind that's sent by God is starting to blow 
on the waters. And what is God going to do? Well, he's recreating the created order. And it says the fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens, again, waters below, waters above, were closed, and the rain from, from the heavens was restrained. And the waters receded from the earth continually, and at the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat, and the waters continued to abate until the 10th month, and then the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. Okay, so God, again, through his creative power, through his spirits, through his wind, is blowing away the chaotic waters. He's causing the flood to subside, and he's taking away, before he used the flood to wipe out humanity, now he's using his spirit, he's using his wind to wipe out the flood. And what we see after this is that basically a couple things happen. So the, the ark comes to rest safely, which you can imagine after, you know, after close to a year of being in this boat and, and being tossed to and fro, I'm sure some of those animals didn't smell particularly good, um, that, that they, I mean, to come to rest on the land, that must have been like such a such a wonderful moment, such a moment of relief. I mean, there are probably moments when they were in the ark that Noah and his family were thinking, are we ever going to see land again? Are we just going to live here and die here on, on this ark of, of old age? Are we just going to run out of food? And no, think about the relief it would have been when you hear that. Well, probably wouldn't sound like that, but you know what I'm saying. When you, when you feel, just like when you feel that airplane touching down, on the ground after a really shaky flight, right? You, you feel that the boat, the ark, has come to rest on the dry ground. And then a couple things happen. God calls Noah to come out of the ark. Noah comes out of the ark, and he makes an offering. He makes a sacrifice to worship God and, and to thank him. And then it says that God promises to Noah, he blesses Noah, and he promises Noah, that he's never again going to destroy the world with a flood like that again. So Noah, he's experienced this flood. God saved him from the penalty of the flood, saved him from the power of the flood, and now God is allowing Noah to come out of the ark into a new world that doesn't have a flood, where once again he's able to enjoy all of God's blessings, but this time without all of the evil and all of the wickedness that was around him because of sin in the world before the flood. In the same way, Jesus was crucified to free us and, and save us from the penalty of sin. He rose to save us from the power of sin, and one day he's going to come back to save us from the presence of sin. That one day, God is going to come back, Jesus is going to come back, and he's going to restore my body. He's going to restore your body. He's going to restore creation. And we're all just like Noah emerging from the ark. Think about that day when Jesus comes back and we're going to be able to emerge from this life into a new, not, not a completely alien world, but, but a world with trees, a world with grass, a world with sunsets, a world with fruit, 
a world with animals, a world with friends, a world with all of the good things that life has to offer, but with no sickness, with no suffering, with no death, with no evil, with no wickedness, not only not in the world, but also not in your heart either, that God will at that moment, he will, he will finish his work in you so that you no longer have to wrestle with sin, that all of those struggles you have with sin will be over. So God saves us from the penalty of sin. He saves us from the power of sin. And finally, he also saves us from the presence of sin. Okay, well, that's how God saves. The second thing I want to talk about, and we'll talk about this a lot more briefly, is who God saves. Who does God save? Look with me at chapter 6, verse 9. I want you to see how God describes Noah. This is going to be the key for us to understand what it looks like for us. Remember, like I talked about at the beginning, just like when I say to Ruby, Ruby, hold my hand, hold my hand, and we're going to walk together. When Daddy, when Daddy starts going, you start going. When Daddy stops, you stop. And I promise I'm going to help you get through this busy parking lot safely. This is what's going to be the key to help us understand what it looks like for you and for me to safely navigate this life and make it in safely to God's kingdom. In verse 9, this is what it says. It says, Noah walked with God. Noah walked with God. You remember that image again? Again, me holding Ruby's hand, and we're walking together, and she, you know, she's looking at a million different things, and she probably has no idea that you know, that car could be backing out. She doesn't see the, the brake lights and that car start to, to illuminate. She has no idea that there's that car that's about to turn is going to come this way, and that if we don't stop, it could, um, that, that it, could, it could hit us. But I do, and as long as Ruby is walking with me, she's going to be fine. The reason that Noah is saved is because Noah is walking with God. The way that we can be saved is by walking with God. God saves people who walk with him. What does it mean to walk with God? What would it look like for you, do you think? Uh, again, imagine that image. What does it look like for you Right now, where you are, and I know it, all of us have different temptations, we have different struggles, we have different challenges, we have different difficulties, we have different frustrations. What does it look like for you, right now in your situation, to, spiritually speaking, almost just like you're, you're reaching up your hand and you're taking hold of your Heavenly Father's hand and you're saying, God... I'm going to walk with you. When you take a step, I'm taking a step. When you tell me to stop, I'm going to stop. What does it look like for you to walk with God? Well, I think it looks very similar to the way it looked for Noah to walk with God. Walking with God, I think it involves two things that we see here in Noah. Walking with God involves Believing God's promises and obeying God's voice. Believing God's promises and obeying God's voice. 
when I'm walking with Ruby across that parking lot, she has to believe that I'm able to get her. I don't like this analogy that much because it feels like Target is heaven. I don't know how comfortable I am with that. But, but, but anyway, she has to believe that I'm able to get her safely across the parking lot to, uh, to, to, to the grocery store, to, to wherever it is, right? Believing in the promise that I can do this, and second of all, following my voice. If, I, if Ruby and I are walking, and I say, okay, Ruby, there's a car coming, let's stop, and she just starts taking off running, well, she's not going to be safe. She has to believe what I say, and she has to obey my voice. What does it look like for us to believe God's promises. Which promises are we supposed to be believing? What does it look like for you today to believe that Jesus saves you from the penalty of sin? That Jesus saves you from the penalty of sin. I think what it looks like a lot of times is that when, when we sin, and again, everybody has something different that's kind of your thing that you struggle with, maybe it's an attitude, maybe it's an action, maybe it's a habit, maybe it's a, maybe it's a way you treat people, maybe it's something that you know that you should be doing that, you're, that you've never worked up the, the courage or the discipline to actually do. We all struggle with something, so I'm not going to try to guess what you struggle with. But so often when we are not doing what we are supposed to be doing or we are doing things that we're not supposed to be doing, we're just racked with guilt and shame. We're just racked with guilt and shame. This is what Satan loves to do. He, he loves to, when he's trying to tempt us to sin, he's like, oh, you should do that. You should do that. You should do that. It's okay if you do that. And then as soon as you do it, he turns around and says, you're such a terrible, horrible, rotten, nasty person. I can't believe you did that. How dare you call yourself a Christian? God must not love you, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right? And so many of us hear that voice after we've sinned, and when we find ourselves sinning, and so we just wallow in this guilt and shame. For you, maybe what it looks like to believe God's promises, and again, listen to this, stop begging God to forgive you, and start thanking God that he's already forgiven you. Sometimes, when you find yourself sinning, the, the best way to trust in God is not to grovel before God and say, oh, God, I'm so terrible. Oh, please, pretty, 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 please, please forgive me. No, it's to say, I believe God's promise that my sins have been paid for on the cross. And so instead of begging God to please forgive me, God, instead, start thanking God that he has already forgiven you. Stop begging God to forgive you and start thanking God that he has already forgiven you. Okay, what does it look like to believe in God's promise that he is, present tense, delivering you from the power of sin? Well, like I said, we all have, we all have things we struggle with. I remember when I was in college, when I was in high school and college, um, again, I'm just trying to be real honest, uh, I struggled a lot with pornography when I was in high school and college. And it was just one of those like really crippling things where I just felt like a piece of trash all the time and I was just wanting so badly and praying so much saying, God, would you please just let me have an experience 
let me in my quiet time this morning, when I hear a certain sermon or when I sing a certain song, I, I, pray, I was praying and hoping and wanting just in that moment, God, would you just, would you just like fix me? Would you just make it go away? Right? Just make me no longer struggle with this. And so often, I would feel so discouraged because that didn't happen. And it felt sometimes like God must not be actually working. God must not actually, I mean, I must not be a Christian because, look, this same sin that I struggled with a long time ago, I'm still struggling with it now. This must not be, be real. In those moments, it's so critical to believe, even when you don't feel it, that Jesus, if you're a disciple of, of Jesus, that Jesus, the Holy Spirit, is currently saving you from the power of your sin. This is the way it's worked for me and the way it, has, it's, the way it still works today with, with different types of sin. That there was no kind of like lightning strike moment where the, the sin struggle just goes away. It looks like gradual growth. And again, there was no moment that was that kind of 180 turn, but gradually over time, if you look back on, you know, five years back or ten years back or something like that, you start to see God has changed me a lot. God has changed me a lot. And so very gradually, God started to get me to the place where I wasn't struggling with that as much. And I still experience temptation today, but God gives me power to, to say no to that temptation and to say no to that sin. And so maybe for you today, you're struggling with something, or maybe it's not a sin that you've committed yourself. Maybe it's a sin that somebody's committed against you. And you're feeling like there's, you, you're feeling like your life is completely dominated by this thing that somebody did to you. Maybe it's your family of origin. That something that happened as you were growing up, some type of dysfunction or some type of toxicity in your family of origin, you feel like you're just a prisoner to that. And there's no way that you can help but continue to live and to walk in the same ruts that you saw your parents and your grandparents walk and live in. Believe God's promise that the power of the Holy Spirit in you, even if you can't see it from day to day, over the course of time, the power of the Holy Spirit is gradually changing you to be more like Christ. And finally, we can believe God's promise that he will one day deliver us from the presence of sin. That this life is not all that we're going to have. One day he is going to come back and he is going to renew everything. So believe, what does it look like to walk with God? Believe God's promises. Second of all, obey God's voice. Obey God's voice. Over and over again, we see God says to Noah, build an ark. He builds an ark. God says, go into the ark. Noah goes into the ark. God says, come out of the ark. Noah comes out of the ark, right? Over and over again, we see Noah, because he believes in God, he also obeys God's voice. Now, God hasn't told, I don't think, um, God's told any of us today here to, to build an ark. Um, but but what, what has God told us to do? In 2023, as disciples of Jesus, those of you who are disciples of Jesus, what has God told us to do? What commands has he given us? And and this is not a a trick question. What God's told us to do, he's told us, love the Lord your God, and also, love your neighbor as yourself. And so, remember I was talking a few minutes ago about when I was in college and high school, you know, just crippled by um, 
being addicted to, to pornography and just being completely dominated by, by that sin and all the guilt and the shame that goes along with it, you know one thing that I was not doing? I wasn't spending very much time thinking about how to love my neighbors. You know why? I was too busy thinking about myself, thinking about what a rotten piece of trash I was, but once I started to understand and believe and to cling to the fact you know, Jesus has saved me from the penalty of that sin. He is saving me from the power of that sin. One day he will save me from the presence of that sin. It frees me up to actually start looking around me, seeing the needs that are around me, and, and finding different ways to love and, and to serve other people. So I wonder what it would look like for you and for us as a church. What if we were a community of people who were not dominated by the guilt and the shame over things that we've done in the past or the things that have been done to us in the past, that we don't just get bogged down and feeling guilty and feeling sorry and being, being discouraged by the things we struggle with. Everybody struggles with something. Jesus is changing you. Keep walking with him. Right? What if we didn't spend all our time thinking about, oh, woe is me and this is so hard and I can't believe I did that again. And as, as a community of people, we actually started looking around and seeing the needs of people in our community and saying, God, how can you, you use me to love and to serve those people? I'll ask the band to, to come on out, and uh, I'll ask you guys to stand as we get ready to sing this last song. Um, let's respond in worship. Um, you know, this is a God who saved us, and he hasn't saved us just to just to sit around. He saved us and given us the privilege to be on mission with him, to help love our neighbors as ourselves, and to be salt and light in the community. So let me pray for us, and the band's going to lead us in another song. Heavenly Father, we love you. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for working in us and through us today. Uh, I pray for all the specific situations that are represented here uh, this morning. Um, I ask God that you would, would you give people uh, comfort in your forgiveness and in your love, would you, through the power of the Holy Spirit, change us in the ways that you're working on us? And Jesus, please come back soon. <laughs> please come back soon. Um, and while we wait, uh, while we wait for this ark to touch down on dry land, so to speak, Jesus, would you, would you use us to everywhere we go and everything we do to cause your will to be, do, be done in the triangle just like it is in heaven. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.